0: Romans chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. Please follow along as I read. Stand, actually, if you would, while we read God's Word. This is the Word of God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... An interesting text, amen? Well, I want to speak to you on this text, and I'm going to tag it, Nothing in my hands I bring. Nothing in my hands I bring. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us as we study this text. We believe this is your word for us today. I pray that I would preach it well. Give me strength. Give me clarity. Pray that I would preach your word, not merely my ideas, that you're, you would open our hearts to be receptive to your word and that you would shape us by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I was heading to Massachusetts this past Thursday, I boarded the Amtrak down at Penn Station sat down in my seat, and the conductor or whatever we would call that guy, what would we call the guy that takes your ticket, Kearney? Is he a conductor? All right, thank you. The conductor comes by and asks me for my ticket, and I said, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy grace I cling. No, I gave him my ticket. But how wild is it that we come to the train of God's righteousness? Hello? Got it. We come to the train of God's own righteousness with no ticket in hand. We didn't purchase it. We didn't earn it. We come, and as a matter of fact, it's the one who comes and says, I come with nothing in my hands. Simply to thy cross I cling. That is the one who is invited onto God's train. Are you with me? And I want to show you that in the text this morning. I remember I was sharing the gospel with somebody in our church before they became a Christian. And uh, I was talking about the gospel of Christ and how Jesus died for our sins, and the offer of forgiveness is a free gift. You do nothing to earn it. You don't do anything to become forgiven. You don't do anything to earn heaven, but that God freely offers us salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ for all who turn from their sins and just simply trust in Jesus. Jesus. And their response, now this is before they became a Christian, their response was this. They said, and I quote, I just can't believe it's that easy. Isn't that interesting? I cannot believe, let's break this down, all right? All you have to do is believe. I cannot believe. Pause. Why? Reason. Reason. It sounds too easy. How interesting is that? Yes, church, faith is simple. But nobody ever said it was easy. It is simple to become a Christian. It is simple that any child in this room can turn in faith to Jesus Christ and believe children. but whoever said it was easy? Is trust easy? I uh, wonder if you had a bungee cord strapped to your body and then you were told, okay, go ahead and jump off this cliff if it would be easy to trust the bungee cord. It's simple. All you have to do is jump. But is, is, is trust easy? I I think about that old trust fall game. You know, if we had lined up a couple guys right here and I was turned around and blindfolded and they were like, okay, Joel, now fall. It's simple. Is it easy to trust? You see, we come with this simple but wildly difficult message to trust in a God who is willing to forgive your sins by the blood of His own Son. To the world, that sounds ludicrous. One person said, one skeptic said, how does this even work? So you're telling me that God became a human and took on flesh, and then he died on this cross, and then as he died, he took the punishment that you deserve if you put your faith in him, you are forgiven. Like, what, skeptic, what is the mechanism by which God uses to forgive people? It makes no sense. What is the logic behind it? You see, it's ludicrous to the world. Yeah. The Bible even tells us that this message sounds like foolishness yeah. to the world. So some people then I tend to think of the good quote unquote good people, religious people. They they think that if they do enough good works. That God will allow them into heaven. Others would say, "Man, I'm too bad. I, I give up on God. I uh, don't have any faith that God would ever forgive me of my sins." Whether you fall into one or both of those categories, you—we all need Romans chapter one, verse—I'm uh, sorry, Romans chapter one through chapter three, which we've studied over the last number of weeks. In it, what we see is that in chapter 1, we are told that everybody is fallen in their sin, depraved, Uh, uh, nobody does good, and that God has wrath against every single human being. Chapter 2 comes along, and chapter 2 says, and God will, by the way, judge us according to our works. Chapter 3 of Romans comes along, and chapter three of 20, uh, uh, verse 23 of chapter 23 is sort of like the, the linchpin, and it says uh, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that then creates this space for God, through Paul, to make his point, which comes in, uh, in verse uh, 28. God, through Paul, says, for we hold... That one is justified. Everybody say justified. Very important word for this morning. That means to be made right with God. To be declared right with God. Everybody is justified, he says in verse 28 of chapter 3, by faith, listen to this, apart from works of the law. Verse 30 of chapter 3, he says, God is one. And this one God will justify, he says, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Those are nicknames for Jew and Gentile. Jews circumcised, Gentiles uncircumcised. He's going to justify everybody, he says, by their faith. So not everybody automatically. You're just born into this world and you believe, in, you believe that like uh, the, the spaghetti monster is God, God is not going to declare you right with him because you're, de- you're having faith in the wrong God. But for everybody who puts their faith in God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he will declare them to be righteous. Now, we get to chapter 4. And as I read it, you probably thought this is kind of a strange chapter. It goes back to the history of Judaism. It goes back to the Old Testament. And just in case you feel like checking out right now, I want you to know that what he says in chapter 4 is so necessary to understand for, our, for us and for our, our salvation. That there was never any other way for people to be saved than what I just said. God has never saved one person by their works. Never one. It has always been God's grace through them placing their faith in the promises of God. The pushback that Paul would have heard would have been, well, from the Jews, from the circumcised. Well, what about Abraham? What about Father Abraham? He's our dude. Wasn't he saved? Wasn't he justified because of the fact that he was circumcised? Because he, he, he followed God? Because he had faith? He's a man of great faith and, and action and, and because he did so many good things. And then they would have been asking this question, thinking along the lines of, like, aren't aren't we somehow better off than the Gentile because they don't have Father Abraham? What Paul's about to say is Father Abraham is actually the father of the Jews and the Gentiles because he was never saved by his circumcision. He was never saved by following the law. So look at verse 1, then, as he gets into it. He's basically saying, okay, let's talk about Abraham. Verse 1, what what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? Now Abraham, just in case you're new to the Bible, Abraham was a pagan who lived about 2,000 years prior to to this writing, about 2,000 B.C. He was from the land of Ur, and God called Abraham to come, follow him, God made a covenant with Abraham, and through Abraham, God was going to bless many nations, he was going to give him a son, he was going to grow a nation, through that nation, all the whole world is somehow going to be blessed, that's a covenant that God made with Abraham, then Abraham miraculously had a, and then his son had a, that would be Abraham's grandson, and his son's name was Jacob, and Jacob's name was changed to, you guys are good, all right. So Abraham became the father of Israel. Yeah. So, so, so what he says here is he is our father according to the what? According to the flesh. Meaning we trace our lineage, our ethnic lineage, back to this man named Abraham. And so then he says, let's talk about him. If we want to hold up Abraham and say, oh, we can be self-justified, we can be made right by our actions, by the fact that we are ethnic Jews, by the fact that we have the law, by the fact that we're circumcised, by the fact that we do good, he's like, okay, let's talk about Abraham. And by the way, let's talk about David, if we want to talk about our heroes. How were they saved? By what method were they declared to be right before God? What did they do to earn their salvation. Now remember too, Paul, the apostle, once believed himself in a works-based righteousness. He did all of the right things. He was a self-righteous, prideful man who believed that because of who he is and what he's accomplished for God, that he would somehow be made right before God until he had a meeting with Jesus on the Damascus Road and his self-righteousness was crushed. And he came crawling in faith before God. So in a brilliant move, he, he takes us to Abraham. As we do this, here's, what I, here's how I kind of want to apply it as a church. I want to just simply ask this question. As we get on the train of, of God's righteousness, which is going to heaven in Christ, what do we bring? What do we bring in our hands to earn a spot on that train? I've got two simple points. We come with nothing in our hands. And my second point is even crazier. We are kept with nothing in our hands. Let's work through this. Number one, we, are, we come with nothing in our hands. Paul has a logical argument as he begins. He basically says that it's impossible for us to be saved by works. It goes against the very character of God being for his own glory. Look at verse 2 and 3. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God, meaning it's impossible to boast about anything before God. It goes against the character of who God is. For what does it say? Now he's taking us back, he's rooting us in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. He says, the text tells us that Abraham believed God. And it was counted Everybody say counted. counted. It was counted to him. We're going to talk about this all next Sunday. I'm going to dive into what it means. Counted as righteous. It was, his faith, his belief, was counted to him as righteousness. What did he do? He believed God. Are you with me? Yeah. Look, just because we're getting in the Old Testament, don't fall asleep on me. If somebody's sleeping next to you, go ahead and nudge them, wake them up, all right? Is it true or false? Is it true or false? Someone might say, in the New Testament, we're saved by grace. But in the Old Testament, they were saved by works, by following the law. Is that true or false? It's false. There are movements today of Christians who would say that's true. There are movements who believe that God has saved people in different ways over different times. That God currently saves during the dispensation of grace, but he previously saved during the dispensation of work. That's false. As a matter of fact, that guts the gospel. It creates two peoples of God and two heavens. There's one Savior. There's one mode of salvation. And what what Paul's saying is, is this whole salvation by grace through faith is not a new thing. Romans or Jews or whoever he's talking to. He's saying this has always been the case. So he's going back into their Bible. He's going to the Old Testament. And he's showing us that Abraham himself believed God and his faith was counted as righteousness. This is called imputed righteousness. Declarative righteousness. That he's not actually righteous, but God has declared him to be righteous. As a gift, we are told. Think of Abraham's good works. Abraham was called by God. He left his home country. Abraham left his family. Abraham walked up the mountainside with Isaac to sacrifice him before God. Think of all of the things, the good actions that that Abraham did before God. How many of those are mentioned right here? zero. It mentions nothing that he did to be counted as righteous before God. What did Abraham do? What did he bring in his hands to get on the righteousness train to heaven? Nothing. He just had faith that the train would keep him. So here's the application that in verse 4 and 5, Paul moves to application. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. As to the one who does not work, but believe in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What he's saying is this compare and contrast. He's saying, look, if you work for something, you get what you, what you are due, but that's not how we're saved. So as an example, if, if I were to hire you and I were to say, hey, I'm going to pay you $100 to come uh, pull the weeds out of my backyard, which needs to happen actually. And I were, I'm going to pay you $20 an hour, all right? It's going to be five hours of work. And you were to come and you were to do it, and then I give you a $100 bill, all right? And then I go over to Kavan and I say, hey, you know, I, I, Tim came and, and uh, pulled my uh, uh, weeds for me, and, and I gave him a $100 bill as a gift. Kavan would say, it doesn't sound like a gift, brother. It sounds like you uh, paid him what was his due. And I think Tim would agree. But let's just say Tim was laid out with sickness. And he was unable to do the work and I still gave him $100. That's now called a gift. You see the difference? Look at the language that's used in this text. Verse 5, he says, To the one who does not work, he does nothing good. He does nothing righteous before God. He makes mistakes. He has done nothing. But he believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. That man is declared to be righteous before God without doing anything. Look at the the description there. He, He believes in the one who justifies the ungodly. What a statement that is. That God would make right the ungodly. This is radical. And what does it say about Abraham? This is saying that Abraham was actually ungodly. That he was not actually good. But God counted his belief as righteousness, verse 3. Now listen, since faith itself is counted as righteousness, is faith itself an act of righteousness? No. You see, we pray for faith because faith is not only hard, but faith is actually impossible for the sinner. It is impossible for somebody who's dead in their trespasses and sins to have faith in Jesus Christ. And so faith, then, we understand to be a gift from God. And so we pray, God, increase my faith. God, give me faith. If you are not a Christian here, you must have faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. And if you feel like you cannot have faith, ask God for faith. And what I'm telling you is that he'll give you the faith. He'll give it to you as a gift. And it will be counted as righteousness. God will say, I see your belief. And that reliance on me is going to be credited to your account as full, complete righteousness. What a gift of grace. Paul, later on when he's writing to Titus, a young pastor, a mentee of his, Paul reminds Titus, he says in Titus 3.5, that God saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. We come to God with nothing in our hands. Now, let me take this a step further. You ready? We are kept with nothing in our hands. You know, some people come to God in the same way that you might get on a train. Let's just go back to my train analogy. You hop on. Let's just say that they give you some grace. They're like, all right, you don't have a ticket, but you're going to work in the dining car kind of keep you on the train, pay your dues. I think some people come to Christ that way. I've actually been told we come to Christ through grace, but once we're saved, we have to do things to be kept. That's not what the text says. We are saved by grace, meaning we are initially brought onto the train by God's grace, and we are kept on the train with nothing in our hands by His grace. Look at verse 6 through 8. He turns us from Abraham to David. Are you ready? Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So now he's about to quote David, King David of Israel, 1000, 1000 B.C., He quotes David, something David wrote in Psalm chapter 32, verse 1 and 2. And David said, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, this is interesting because Paul is making a case for faith-based righteousness. And David here doesn't mention faith, justification, or righteousness. And so you might be looking at this and you might be asking, what does this have to do? Blessed are the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who, against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What does this have to do with Paul's bigger argument? That we are saved by grace through faith, that that is counted as our righteousness. What does this have to do with that? Well, You see that word count in verse 7. Everybody say counted. Remember that word? That's the linking word for Paul. Your faith is counted to you as righteousness. And check this out. Here's the other side. As Christians. All right? Listen. Your sin is not counted against you. That's the other side of it. He not only gives you something. But he also says, I will not hold your sins against you. Now King David here, as we look at King David, we don't see a good man. We don't see somebody who was kept by his good deeds. As a matter of fact, as we look at the life of King David, we see a man who was devastated by sin. Journey back with me about a thousand years prior to the writing of this, 1000 B.C., all right? About a year before Psalm 32 was written, when David penned those words. Use your imagination. We're sitting in David's room with him, in the palace, and all of his men are off fighting a war. And you're watching David walk around his room, and he he looks out the window, and something immediately catches his gaze. He paces back and forth. You see him begin to sweat. He looks out the window again, and this time he stares. And you peek, and you get a glimpse of the object of his gaze, a young woman who's taking a bath on a rooftop. It takes a matter of minutes maybe hours for him to call her to the palace, to get her into his chamber. His, his desire turns into lust, which turns into action. And in a matter of minutes, he is a fallen man, a shamed man. A failed man. A couple months later, you're with David as he hears the news from Bathsheba that she is pregnant. Now, Uriah, her husband, is out to war, fighting the battle. Nobody can know what you've done. David thinks. So immediately he moves into manipulation, and he tries to bring Uriah back so that Uriah will sleep with his wife, and maybe he can kind of get off this pregnancy thing. Uriah, being an upstanding individual, says, I will not sleep with her while uh, my men are off to battle, and he refuses. So then David says, okay, I've got to go to plan B, and he puts Uriah in the front of the battle, and he gets him killed intentionally. Now he takes Bathsheba into his own home so that he can cover up the pregnancy as a king who's caring for the widow of one of his fallen soldiers. Will he get away with it? About a year goes by, and the prophet Nathan comes along and confronts him and exposes his sin, every bit of it. And there are earthly consequences, and they're devastating. David writes Psalm 52, Psalm of repentance. Now shortly after he writes that Psalm of repentance, then he writes Psalm 31. And here in this Psalm, or Psalm 32, I'm sorry, here in this Psalm, what David discovers in this love, in this grace, in this kindness of God is this scandalous truth. Let me read it again. This is what he says, I, and I quote. This is David after this whole incident. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. The greatest consequence for David would have been cut off from God, not right with God. But David says, I am blessed because God has not counted my sin against me. This church is scandalous grace. One commentator put it this way. He says that God not only justifies apart from works, but He justifies contrary to what we deserve. Don't you guys understand that David was already converted by this time. He was already called a man after God's own heart. And it was after all of that that he went and sinned. And God is saying that there is no sin that I'm going to count against you, David. This is Scandalous Grace Church. This is how... Broken, bad sinners get happy when we recognize and realize that your past sins, your current sins, and your future sins, listen, are not counted against your righteousness in Jesus Christ. Can I say that again? Your past sin, your current sin, and your future sins are not counted against your righteousness. In Jesus Christ. And this, as Eric always says, makes a man happy. Amen, Eric? Come on somebody. Listen, that word blessed, that word blessed is also the word for happy in the Greek. Can we just change happy for blessed for a moment? Look at verse 7. Happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Your law, if your lawless deeds are forgiven. Happy. Oh, how happy you are. Verse 8, happy is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. Verse 9, is this happiness now only for the circumcised? Or is it also for the Gentile, for the uncircumcised, those apart from God, those who are bad, those who don't have the law, the uncircumcised? Did sin... Change David's status with God? No. Will any sin ever change your status with God? Church? No. There is no sin which nullifies God's declaration that you are made righteous in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. There is no righteous work that you can do to make yourself right with God after you sin. You fall into sin. Oh man, what do I do? How do I make myself right with God again? There's nothing you can do. Because it's already been done. Listen, this is like a good test as to how much you actually believe the gospel. In the moment that you sin. If you die, will you go to heaven? Yes. If you are in Christ, and you fall into some severe sin, and you die in that moment, God will not count that sin against your imputed righteousness in Jesus Christ. This is phenomenal. This makes a man happy. This makes a woman happy. (laughs) I'm sure it does. I've never experienced womanhood, but I'm sure it does as well. Imagine after work, a a man goes home without his wife knowing, with his secretary. He serves in his church. He believes in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. For months, he has been tempted with sexual sin. He hasn't been able to pay attention in church. He thinks about this love affair, just imagining it in his mind. He's miserable in life. His love has grown cold for his wife. And he goes home with his secretary. And that night, somebody breaks into the house and shoots him dead. Where does his soul go? Blessed is the man for whom God will not count his sin against him. That's the gospel. Now, here's the thing is, is uh, when I preach like this, somebody will say to me after the service, I can almost guarantee it, that I'm giving people a license to sin. Does preaching like this give people a license to sin? My answer is never. If it does, they don't understand the gospel. If it does, they don't actually understand sin. They don't understand how weighty sin is, how, how sin makes them miserable in life. I mean, just look at Abraham. When Abraham sins, there's earthly consequences. God might ruin your life on earth to save it for all of eternity, church. Just look at David. There was consequences. Because of your sin, God might ruin your life on earth to save it for all of eternity. But look, to be a Christian is to be freed from sin. Therefore, we are freed to righteousness. In faith, then... Our faith leads us to follow God, to obey God. We are given by the Spirit as Christians a new heart. And every Christian, you know you are a Christian if you are miserable in your sin. If you're not, fall on your knees before God in repentance and say, God, what's wrong with my heart? I mean, when we look at Abraham and David, we see that their faith actually led them to righteous actions. Like legit good deeds. Even though they were sinners. Our faith leads to sanctification. We are changed. But the focus here is how we are saved. We're saved by grace through faith. And the focus is also how we remain saved. David remains saved Not by good deeds, but by faith. Here's my simple point. There is no stage at any point of your life in which you are counted as righteous because of what you do. No stage. We are talking about foolproof grace. High octane grace. And this applies, by the way, in the kingdom come. You know what the song, a thousand years, let's say, after Jesus returns, recreated heavens and earth, and we are living forever with God in heaven. A thousand years, a hundred thousand years later, as we are in heaven, do you know what the song is that we are singing? It is, worthy is the Lamb who was slain for all of eternity. We are looking at the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ who was slain for the forgiveness of our sins. Our song for all of eternity is grace, grace, grace. We are forever kept by God's grace. Let me begin to close here as Abraham is shown here to be the father of all who simply put their faith in Jesus. Let's look at verses 9 through 12 as we close. He says in verses 9 through 12, makes this argument. He says, is this blessing only for the circumcised? Meaning, is it only for the Jews, this happiness? Or is this also for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, the bad, the pagans? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. Meaning meaning Abraham was counted as righteous before he ever did one good deed. Before he was circumcised, before he took the sign of Judaism, of Israel. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness That he had by faith. Kind of like baptism. While he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So the righteousness would be counted to them as well. What he's saying is is that God did it in this way. 2,000 years before. So that Gentiles would one day know that I count you as righteous by your faith. Not because of your circumcision. Not because you become a Jew. Not because you follow the law. But because you have belief. Verse 12. And to make him, look at this, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith. Not the footsteps of action. Not even the footsteps of obedience. But the, those who would have the kind of faith that Abraham had, the faith that simply turns and believes God is able to do all that he says he will do. Amen. That our, the, the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What he's saying is this, is that, is that Abraham is our father. I don't know if you guys know this song that I sung growing up as a kid. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. Come on, everybody. Father Abraham had many sons. Come on. Many sons. No, we're not going to do it. Jody's doing it. Right arm, left arm, right leg, left leg, turn around, sit down. Is it cool for Gentiles to sing that song? Ask the kids that next time you're doing a little teaching with them. Have them sing that song and just ask them, is it cool for Gentiles to sing that song? Yes. This is what he's saying. He said, What he's saying is, is that Abraham is the father of the Gentiles. In some ways, he's almost... He's almost saying like he's more the father of the Gentiles than the, than the Jews. He's not really saying that, but what he said, but but he was he was saved while he was uncircumcised, when he just simply came to God in faith. And then he says he's also the father of the Jews, those who are circumcised who have faith, the same kind of faith. Meaning, how does any of us get saved? Whether you think you're good. Whether you think you're bad, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're black, white, Latino, Asian, whether you're from America or Zimbabwe, how does anybody get saved? It's through having the same kind of faith that Father Abraham had. And that's to believe in God as as to what God has revealed to us and that today in our era is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So yeah, should we close with that song today, Father Abraham, that many sons? that That would be legit. Listen, when Jesus died on the cross, I want you to hear this. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for sinners, for bad people. He took all of their the punishment for their sin in his own body. He died in their place as their substitute. And in his death, God gave us a promise. He said, all who trust that Jesus died for their sins, I will give you the righteousness of Christ as a gift. Jesus then rose from the dead, defeating death, defeating sin, and invited all of us to come to him. How does somebody become a Christian? How do you get saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I hope people believe this morning. I hope we hear stories of how you believed and God counted your belief as righteousness. It's just that... Simple. It really is. But it's not easy. It's a miracle. It's a gift from God. As I was in Massachusetts, my friend Morgan and I went to a little diner, and the waitress came and took our order, and he chatted with her a little bit, asked her if she was going to come back to church at some point. She had been to his church once, and he told me after we left that, uh, that he preached the gospel in his sermon, that after the sermon uh, he asked her what she thought, and uh, she said, quote, I cannot believe that God would forgive my sins. Isn't it interesting that it's so simple, and we think if it's so simple, why doesn't everybody just believe in Jesus? And it's because fallen man has that response I cannot believe it's this easy. I cannot believe, maybe that I'm a sinner. Or maybe those that believe they are sinners, I cannot believe that God would forgive us my sins. Why? It's because it's incredibly difficult to trust. Because every aspect of our life, we have trust that has been broken. For some, your trust was broken. In your first year of marriage, after that big fight. For others, your trust was broken as a child when your father promised to come to games and he never showed up. For some, your trust was broken. Even as somebody said they forgive, forgave you, and you trusted that they forgave you. And as time went on, they continued to hang and hold your mistake over your head, and it was... Seen very clearly that you were not forgiven. You can't even trust their forgiveness. You were promised a promotion at work, and your coworkers are slimy and manipulative, and you didn't get it. How can we trust anybody? How can we trust God? We live in a world of broken trust. They say it takes years to build trust. And trust is destroyed in a moment. But friends, I want you to know that there was never one moment when God destroyed His own trustworthiness. Never one moment in all of biblical history, in all of the history that we can understand and know as human beings, in your life. There is has never been a moment in which God destroyed His trustworthiness. If you're not a Christian here, I want you to understand this. And if you are a Christian, I want you to, to, to testify to this reality. That God has been faithful to you. Testify to, 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 to those in the room that don't know Jesus. That God has been a faithful God. Can anybody say, yes, I believe that God is able... He's able to keep us. He's able to deliver His promises that He's made to us. Oh, have faith in God. And as you have faith in God, God will count your faith as righteousness. And over time, as now a person of faith, listen to this, you will learn to trust Him. You see, our trust also grows as Christians over time. Blair Lynn, in her book, Finding My Father, talks about how when a child is adopted, their legal status changes, but sometimes it takes a while for their sense of themselves to catch up. She talks about how hard it is for a newly adopted child to learn to trust their family. She talks about how in some instances she's heard of a child who was adopted by a family that loves them yet they hide food in their room because they're afraid that they will be famished and not fed as they were not fed by their biological family. There's stories of how newly adopted children have kept their bags packed and refused to unpack because they are so used to being kicked out of every house, whether that's family or foster care houses, because of one mistake. abandoned because of one sin. Listen, even though you're part of the family of God, sometimes it is hard for us to trust that God will keep us according to His grace. Those of you who have faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you have been adopted by God. God has declared you to be His children. Yet sometimes, as Blair Lynn says, I quote, sometimes we live like we're still under Adam. Sometimes we live like we are still in our old home. Like we are under Satan, our former master, facing death. How many of us in this room have been adopted into God's family with nothing in our hands? I want you to know that you are kept in God's family with nothing in your hands. Even when you fail, God says, you are mine. There are times that you may say, I'm not part of this family. I don't feel like I'm part of this family. I'm a screw-up. I'm worthless. I want you to know that God has given you his last name. And regardless of how you feel, you are His by His grace. And regardless of how you feel, you are kept His. You remain His by His grace. Trust is built over years. And trust can be destroyed in a moment. But praise God that there's never been one moment in all of history when God has failed His people. There's never been one moment in all of history when God has failed His own trustworthiness. Sinners, come alive. Come to faith in Jesus Christ. Remain in Christ Trust in Him. And God looks at your faith and He says, I count that as righteousness. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling.